You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Datages friends and family, welcome back to Datages and the continuation of our interview with my mentor, Gary Rappaport, founder and CEO of the Rappaport Company. If you missed the first half of this interview, please pause here and go back and listen to part one of our interview with Gary, where we talked about his early career, his approach to raising capital, and how he manages his investor relations, along with his commitment to teaching and helping mentor the next generation of real estate investors and developers. Gary also shared his valuable insights regarding surviving in the real estate industry during inflationary periods in our economy. Please go back and have a listen. We now pick up with Gary for part two of the interview, which is part of our overall series on It Takes Credit to Make Money. Gary, welcome back. Let's dive right in. When we concluded the last episode, we were talking about how you manage investors in your real estate projects while maintaining operational control over your investments. I'd like to pick up today by shifting our focus to what it takes to be a successful operator in real estate investing. Can you share with us what it takes to be an operator and how you have built your organization for success? When I talk again about people that wish to start and do what I'm doing, most of the time I find out it's two or three people. It's not one. I'm one, and I'll come back and tell you why I'm one instead of three. But what I've seen, I call it a three-legged stool of what people need to be able to put a deal together. One, one of the three has to have enough assets and reputation to be able to get a loan for a property because we're not going to be buying something or building something without debt. Two, someone has to have the ability to raise the equity. That's the most important part, is to be, and the hardest part, is to go out there and raise the equity. And three, is someone has to have the expertise in the area that they're telling their story. I always like to say, if I went out to any of my investors and said, you know, I'd like to build a data center tomorrow. I've never built one before, but I've always wanted to build one. I don't know anything about it, but I'm going to build one. Nobody would invest with me, no matter how much they believe that I'm good at what I do. So we have to understand that we have to have these goals. We have to figure out how to get to where we want to be. And one of the things is, if I want to be an entrepreneur one day, is how do I get there? What classes, what kind of job should I have? You know, what's going to get me the ability to put the deal together? And so those three parts of what I like to say has to be there. Now, I was lucky because I ended up having a certain ability because of being a home builder that I built up a lot of banking relationships. I met a lot of people in the city that hopefully were going to give me a chance. And I had a certain expertise because I worked for three years in a shopping center company that gave me expertise within the management leasing. 
and marketing of a retail grocery anchored shopping center. So I had those three parts, but most people don't. And so two or three people need to look across at each other and make decisions together to be able to put a deal together. So you're the unicorn, you're the one-legged stool. Well, you know, and it's funny sometimes how that gets to be that way. You know, we talk about how our life is set by when we're younger. So one more story. So my father, when in high school, he was one of four brothers. His older brother, five or six years older, decided to start a tie manufacturing company, which meant if he would go to a small store in Brooklyn and say, if you need any ties in your inventory, you know, we can make it overnight and we will get you ties tomorrow or the next day because he had these people that were peace workers that would make the ties. My father loved the business. And so he worked after school for his brother every day. And when he finished high school, his brother gave him 10% of the company and sold him 10% of the company. Now, those are times of great fear, depression, poor family. And my father loved what he was doing. But he came home at night. And I'm the only son. I have three younger sisters. And he would come home and say, I'm very frustrated. My brother sets my salary. My brother makes all the decisions. My brother does this and my brother tells me that. But he's not leaving. He's afraid. He's a wonderful man. And he lives his life that way. And he has a nice life. And he raises us the way I've been brought up. A friend of mine once said to me, I have a brother who wants to come into business with me. What should I do? And I said to him, you have two choices. You're going to give him 50% of the business and you're going to be 50-50 partners with him or you're going to help him somewhere else and you're not going to give him anything. Because if you do anything less, you're going to have a fight sometime and you're going to have an unhappy brother. And he decided, I'm going to help him. I don't want to give him 50%. Okay, so now my life comes on and people come to me and they say, Gary, one and one equals three. We should be partners in everything. Look what we can do. And I say, I will be partners with you on an individual deal. I'm happy to even be a general partner with you on an individual deal. Well, the company is never going to be Rappaport and Smith, no matter how large I could have been. I'm very satisfied with where things are. I'll have partners in every single deal. I'll have general partners on an individual deal. And I've got hundreds. I've got over 100 partners in some of my deals. But the main decision of going forward, buying a center, signing on a loan, building something, that's a decision I make by myself. And that's because of my growing up and the experiences my father had otherwise. And I don't want to have those experiences. And life is set by the early times of all of our lives. I can certainly relate, Gary. I've had partners at two different stages of my career. The Datages friends and family has heard the stories about the founding of my career and founding of Tricor Southwest Corporation with my former college roommate, Damon Dunn. And the part of the story I haven't gotten to yet is how difficult it is to break up a partnership when the time comes. Because as strong as partnerships can be, and it's really hard to find a partner with whom your interests are aligned, it's even further difficult and maybe impossible to find a partner whose interests can remain aligned with yours over a long period of time. Because inevitably, people grow on different paths. And if you grow apart like that, it's extremely difficult to reconcile and then to figure out a fair way to dismantle what you've built together. We haven't talked about, you know, a little bit of the structure here. 
the way all real estate deals are set, I never set them this way, but any major deal is that equity is put in above debt. The question is, is what is a return on this equity? And then there's this bonus or promote or sponsorship that the entrepreneur or the sponsor gets if they do a good job. And so the question is, generally in my businesses, I give about an 8% return and then I share 50-50 of cash flow above an 8% return. And most importantly, upon appreciation during a refinance or a sale. And there's lots of different numbers that get changed in there. But at the end of the day, I didn't set it that way. Probably some really smart entrepreneurial asset managers said, how am I going to get Gary Rappaport to focus on my deal as the sponsor? He says, I'm going to give him a bonus if he does a good job. And there's all different things. We call them waterfalls. We call about an internal rate of return. We call about cumulative versus a cumulative compounded, cumulative non-compounded. And there's lots of different ways these deals are structured. And that's what I have written in the book and what I've been teaching for 30 years is to help people understand that so they can be compensated fairly for the risk that they take versus of the risk of their partner of their investors. Their investors slash partners could always lose their investment, but they can't lose anything more than that. But you as a sponsor possibly could lose more because you might be signing on a loan. And of course, their money does not come in until you've put the deal together, done all the diligence, put all the pieces together. And at the end of the day, on the last day, on the day of closing, their money now comes out of an escrow and is at risk. And you're not getting your bonus because you're signing on a loan. You're getting a bonus because you're good at what you do and you have created value over a certain level that allows you to get this bonus because of your expertise. Perform for your investors and then the upside is beyond that. Well, Gary, we've spent a lot of time focusing on your leadership in the business community and the examples that you've set and everything you've learned and shared along the way. But I want to shift focus now to you being a leader in a family setting. You've talked about your family a little bit earlier in this discussion. And I think you know that one of the areas in which you've been the greatest inspiration to me is actually in family life, not just business life. You and I are both very committed and involved fathers. And you and I are both blessed to have strong, amazing women in our lives through a second marriage. You've really helped me over the years by example and by advice to navigate having a successful blended family unit by being caring and putting the needs of family ahead of self and ego. Can you share with our friends and family here at Datages a bit about your philosophy and your approach when it comes to family that's made you so successful in that regard? That sounds easy to answer, Chad. I'm not sure I have a defined answer of that. No, surely no book to read to have that. I'm very fortunate, but I do spend time on it. Nothing comes without spending that time. You said that was your first third. There's a reason it's first. It's definitely first. And it's recognizing that everybody is different and their goals and needs and level of risk is different. And you have to fit within that. It's starting out, my first wife, we were both married at 21. My first wife wanted to get divorced. It was a difficult time. I went through that. I was running the shopping center company for her father in 1981. We were in a terrible recession. 
and I'm no longer having my own business. Things can't be worse. I'm living in a town that's really not where I grew up. She wants to have a divorce. And I am living in a house that I built here in Maryland at that time. And my ex-father-in-law and ex-mother-in-law are living next door. The perfect storm. Yep. And I end up making an arrangement with my ex-wife and my ex-family. And I continue to operate the company from 1982 to 1984 as an ex-son-in-law running the shopping center company business of my ex-father-in-law. But I'm an honest guy, and he trusts me implicitly, but I'm divorced. And now all of a sudden, I'm living, you know, outside of that house in Washington, but running this business. Married 10 years. Not married now for the next 15. Then I was lucky and found Daphne, and now being married almost 26 years, it's a wonderful life and a wonderful marriage, and I'm very, very fortunate. But I never gave up on understanding because I have two daughters that were with my first wife and I have three daughters with Daphne. So my daughters are 46, 43, 31, 24, and the youngest is turning 19 in June. I've never been an empty nester and I'm turning 73. But for the good of the younger two children and the good of now the grandchildren, everybody made an effort to continue to get along. I spend a lot of time making sure, and I always like to say, it's easy. It's not easy, but it's not that difficult. It's a commitment, and it's the first and most important thing in one's life. And I'm very fortunate that right now, all five daughters get along, all the grandchildren get along, my wife and my ex-wife are best friends, and we're all there for the good of each other. And I have tried to direct things after you're no longer on this earth. But I hopefully have set things up in an understanding way with enough knowledge given to everyone in the family that they will continue to all get along and share things together for the good of all. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's a great segue because we've talked about succession planning in a business context. And I truly think you've done a masterful job, as you described earlier, of building a succession plan for the longevity of Rappaport so that the company and the name live on long after you're involved in it. But I think this concept applies to families as well, as you were just describing. And I've also always admired and respected your approach to setting up your family to succeed and thrive now and in the future. And using your own financial success to take conscious steps to bring the family closer together. And I really think that I would characterize you as the epitome of the benevolent patriarch, if I could apply a term to it. Can you share today just a bit of your advice and perspective with regard to generational transfer of knowledge, wisdom, and wealth, and how all of that works? Well, most importantly, I think I separate an operating management company from the ownership of real estate. And an operating company, if there's no second generation to come into it, has to be figured out to hopefully operate for the benefit of the real estate. But there's no one in my family that could adequately run it. So I don't quite honestly care if the company in the future that's Rappaport stays as Rappaport, or one day, just like a law firm, sometimes the founder's name stay for the benefit of it, and some disappear, and the new lawyers are now the name and partners of the company. So the management company, 
as I mentioned earlier, is structured. So the top four people that are in the company that have an ownership interest also have an interest to buy the company if they wish. If all four wish based on age, they'll each own 25%. And if not, if two buy it, they'll each own 50%. But there will be an ongoing stability there that I believe will continue to most importantly take care of the real estate. On the other side, I'm quite happy that I don't have any of my children in the business. I think the risk of having one or two children when I have five is more dangerous for everyone getting along. If one child is running in a business and receives a salary and has more knowledge and maybe even more control, then I'm saying those other children that are not in the business might start having some type of jealousy, especially when they're all married and they have you know, spouses and they have children of their own and life goes on as many as I've seen. And of course, I've seen. So to me, I'd rather the five of them be aligned, even if they have a problem with how some of this has been set up. And it's been set up based on age with trustees and with my present wife, Daphne, as it relates to the children that are ours that I have with Daphne. So the two older children, depending on age, There's a very specific distribution required and must occur, but there's a trustee that's involved. That trustee is with a law firm, and if not, it's going to be with a trust that would oversee it. There are no family members making the major decisions of what goes on, except on certain instances, part of it with my present wife, Daphne. So it's a little complicated as it relates to the five children because their ages are so different, and even now... The older children live off more of the cash flow off of these properties, while the younger children don't need to. But there's been a lot of thought. And I like to say I am someone that spends as much time trying to save what I've created as creating again. And I think I've done a hopefully a good job. But part of that job is to make sure that the people that are your beneficiaries understand what the vision is and hopefully understand how to make that vision occur and be successful for all of them for another generation or two. That's fantastic. As I said, it's clear that there's been a lot of thought that's gone into it. You've really spent a lot of time sharpening the axe, as they say, and planning all of those components. So Chad, as an example, my wife Daphne presently works now in the office here two days a week. Why? Because she is in all the major meetings to understand the major things that are going on so she can hopefully, based on what rights that she would have, will continue that. And it's given the top four people in the company comfort and stability that things in the future will probably not change, even if she has a right to change certain parts of what she has the right to change will not occur. I happen to have now a monthly meeting with all the daughters And I speak to them separately at times as well, based on their age and their ability to understand the details of what I do. But that Zoom meeting with all the daughters and my wife, Daphne, are to explain to them actually what they have and how it's run and how they're getting monies to live on at different ages. But what, again, the vision is going forward, and hopefully my daughters will continue with what I've taught them to be able to be good administers of these properties because I want them to live off the cash flow or some of the cash flow, but I surely don't want to be forced to sell these properties and give them a large amount of cash, which could be, you know, lost and then lost to the next generation. Consistent with every other aspect of your life. 
Gary, the consummate communicator and educator. Outside of a business context with your daughters, you talked about how diverse their passions and their pursuits are. What have you found as sort of the go-to universal piece of advice that applies to all of them and that you think could apply to our friends and family broadly, even when you're talking about people of very, very diverse backgrounds? What's your go-to dadage? I can tell you that I have learned and matured with age to recognize that my wife, all my children, and my ex-wife, they're all different people. They have different desires and needs, different levels of anxiety and stress. No matter why, I might say, I don't understand why you have any stress or anxiety, but they all, of course, have their own stress of their lives, and they're all different people. And I can tell you earlier, even though I am the patriarch of my family, and I surely oversee with direction all of their lives to a point, I think I have stepped back materially over the last 10 and even 20 years compared to the past to recognize that they're individuals and they have to live their own life. I cannot run their lives and it's detrimental to them. It's detrimental to me. It's detrimental to long-term stability and happiness. And I think only age has allowed me to recognize that I have to step back and let them find their own hopeful happiness in their lives as I've found in mine. I'm sure many of our dadages, friends and family out there right now are saying, God, I wish my mom and dad were listening to this broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Gary, as we're winding down the interview today, I do want to take some time. You mentioned earlier something that's really exciting to me, and I know you're excited about it as well, the new book. Why don't you share with our friends and family what you have on the horizon and what that process looks like, what it takes to write and then publish and produce different versions of business publications for broad circulation? Well, I've never done anything as difficult as writing a book because I'm not a good writer. I'm a financial man. I say, think how long it takes someone, uh, how long it takes me to write a good email. And then think how long it takes to write a good one-page letter or how it takes to write a three-page report or a 10-page report or a 50-page report. And then think how long it takes to write a 500-page book. And I have been fortunate that I have, in my entire career, I've always recognized that there are people that know how to do things in each area much better than I am. I'm someone that puts together the best construction person, the best financial person, the best leasing person, the best marketing person, and it's the same thing. And I found some really wonderful people. That was dadage number one, Gary. Surround yourself with people who are better than you are at what they do best and let them do it. And I am good at delegating authority. And that's the only way to build a company up, of course, one person at a time to what I've built. But in writing the book, I was first teaching. The trade association came to me over 30 years ago and said to me, what topic would you like to teach on? We would like you to teach at the University of Shopping Centers. I put together a class on structuring partnerships, which is, of course, what I do every day. And I taught. And I wasn't a great teacher that first time. I was a good lecturer, but I wasn't interactive. But over time, you become better at it. And I became a better teacher. And then about 20 years ago, I was asked to write a book. And I fortunately had a couple of people help me 
structure the table of contents, the different sections, the tables, the photographs, what I was going to write about. And the trade association, the International Council of Shopping Centers, actually printed and produced that first book for me in 2010. And then continuing to teach, they talked me into writing a second book, and which we printed in 2016. The trade association is no longer in the printing business. So this time, the question was, should I write a book again? Did I want to commit myself to that type of hundreds and hundreds of hours, especially at night? I decided to do that with the help of a gentleman that's a very good friend and someone to help me write the first two books. And I decided to write a chapter on COVID and write a chapter on inflation and change all of the examples and the photos and expand the book. And I'm very, very proud of this book. And this book was different in the fact that I wrote it at night, sent it to my friend. He critiqued it, wrote it, changed it back. I wrote back and forth. And this was every night for the last year and a half. And we finished the book from the standpoint of writing maybe just a month or so ago. And we decided to see if we could be selected by Forbes in their business book publishing department to help us publish this book. And you have to be approved to do that. And I'm very happy that they allowed me to be a Forbes author. And we are printing this book. Right now, we're in editing. Then we have typesetting. We're picking the paper. We've already confirmed the cover. And we'll be printing it this summer. And it will be available in September. And then in conversations with the president of the International Council of Shopping Centers, Tom McGee, they have accepted, and I'm happy that I'm able to donate all the proceeds of the book to the Educational Foundation of the International Council of Shopping Centers. Because the last thing I wish to do is to be able to sell a book on Amazon or advertise a book when I speak and think that somebody is thinking that Gary Rappaport's making $10 or $8 or something, you know, in selling a book. I'm very excited about it. I think it's better than the first two books. And what it's doing is what I wish to do, is to teach others to structure partnerships and one day do what I'm doing and hopefully reach their dreams sooner than otherwise with my help. That's amazing, Gary. Such a great vision, such a great commitment and a labor on your part. And then to donate the proceeds, as you're talking about, truly altruistic. And it's clear that the legacy that you're building and have built and will continue to build around Rappaport is not just about real estate. It's not just about shopping centers, but it's about really helping people to grow, to learn, to achieve within their own careers and advancing them. And I know that that's an amazing legacy. It means a lot to me. And I know it means a lot to everyone that you've touched in that regard. And I can't wait for the new book. We're going to be here at Datages. It'll be on our radar screen. We'll be looking out for when it comes out. And we're going to do everything we can to help bring it to our friends and family and maybe find some time to bring you back in the fall. And we can produce some other content around some of what's actually in the book to help highlight that in a really interactive and engaging way for our friends and family here at Datages. If you're up for it. Sure. I'm happy to do so. I'd be honored. Well, that would be awesome. That'd be awesome. 
Well, Gary, I know that you expressed a little bit of hesitation about one of our traditions here at Dadages, which is honoring the legacy of the bad dad joke. And I know that you aren't one to tell bad jokes, but the great thing that makes dad jokes universally funny is the fact that they're not funny at all. So I invite you, Gary, to share with us your very best worst dad joke for the Dadages friends and family. All right. Well, before I say that joke, Let me tell you that this will relate to when a joke is told, that the cliche is you're never supposed to fall in love with a piece of property. You're always, of course, if you're lucky to fall in love with a person, someone that you might love, hopefully with true love and forever for the rest of your life, but not a property. There's always another property. Okay, with that, now, the joke that I have says, I've tried many times to buy enclosed shopping centers at auction, but it has never worked out for me. It turns out the old saying is true. You can't win them all. You can't (laughs) win them all. (laughs) Classic, classic. I love it, Gary. Well, thanks for being a good sport in that. Thanks for playing along when it comes to the bad dad joke. It's, like I said, part of our legacy that we try to preserve here at, at Dadages. Like I said, Gary, when it comes to legacies, yours is a great one. So multidimensional from professional to family to the education that you've set out for so many people, including myself. And I'm so grateful that you've spent some of your time taking part of your weekend to share with our friends and family here at Datages. And I know it's going to be meaningful to them to have the opportunity to listen to this interview and to have the opportunity to follow as your book comes out and all of the great and exciting things we have ahead. So thank you so much, Gary. You're welcome. Thank you, Chad. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I am doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.